do. We hide them well. They're way over here and way out there. So uh, that is uh, kind of something we'll wrap up this week. I finished the Joel study. Uh, a lot of you that were here or watched online, uh, you already know, but um, we, uh, the Joel study is complete. Uh, not because I taught it, but because it's so relevant to the times we live in. I'd encourage you to go listen to it. If you're driving to work, just, uh, just listen to it. It's archived out there. Uh, we talked about some really important things, like the fact that a temple has to be rebuilt and will be rebuilt for things that are coming. We talked about uh, the things that will be coming upon the world based on uh, the book of Joel and that final third chapter. So I'd highly encourage you to uh, take a listen. And uh, also talked about uh, things that were relate to the coming Antichrist and uh, things that are important. Those aren't things that should scare us. Those are things that should prepare us. So uh, so I encourage you to go check that out. It's on our YouTube channel. Just type in Calvary Chapel Richmond or Calvary Chapel RVA and it'll come right up. And then we'll start uh, a Wednesday series in the new year from the book of Joshua. So that will be coming in the new year. Uh, and then lastly, we're going to continue to pray for revival. Uh, in addition to praying for our own country, we'll pr be praying today for the nation of Kazakhstan. That's probably a nation that comes, rolls off your tongue regularly, right? You're thinking a lot about Kazakhstan. It's a big country, though, landmass-wise. You know, it's the, I think it's the ninth, the eighth or not, I think it's the ninth largest landmass country in the world. I know it's right behind Argentina, and India is even larger than Argentina. So it's a, it's a massive, uh, as far as a track of land, one of the largest countries on Earth, not one of the largest population countries on Earth, but the, but a huge. Uh, landmass there in Central Asia, and uh, God loves the people of Kazakhstan just as much as he loves Richmond, Virginia. Amen? So we want to pray for revival for our own nation, which desperately needs it. Uh, God continues to spare us with a lot of grace, a lot of grace. I talked about this in the Joel study. I'm not overemphasizing this. I'm underemphasizing this. When I say this, I, I, there's no hyperbole in this statement from me at all, please. When I say our nation is like Jenga, I mean it. We are one little, you ever play Jenga and you think it's, I, I think I can get it. And one comes out and the whole thing crumbles. Uh, we've got dozens of things that could send our country in absolute disarray in a New York minute. That's why I preach the word. That's why God called me out of my prior career is to go into ministry because I really believe that God is preparing his people for such a time as this. Amen. That's why we've been praying for revival, and our nation needs it. And, and more than, I mean, it's not just the nations, it's, it's people's souls that we're talking about. That's why Jesus came. We'll be looking at that this very morning. So we want to pray, and uh, we've been doing this ever since the pandemic. It's much harder than this second service, uh, but if you want to get on your knees, feel free to join me. If you need to sit there, that's totally fine. Just pray with us. 30 seconds of silence, and then I will pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Let's pray. humbly bow before you. We come before your mercy seat.
We cannot even comprehend, I know I can't comprehend, Lord, just how merciful you are. You've extended grace upon grace, upon me personally, upon each person that's here, upon our nation, upon the nations. And Lord, uh, you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Lord. You show great patience. We live in a country, Lord, that is full of idolatry, full of lukewarmness, full of uh, just so many sins and bondages that, that people are under. And Lord, we ourselves are far from perfect, and Lord, you've saved us but by your grace. And many of us here can look back and remember where we came from before you rescued us, and we thank you for that. But Lord, uh, we pray that even starting with us first in this room, Lord, you'd forgive us. Wash us afresh and anew this morning. You cleanse us, Lord, of our own transgressions, Lord. Even things that we didn't confess or we didn't even see, Lord. Blind spots. We just thank you for your grace and you're our advocate. We pray that you'd purify us, your people, your church. And Lord, you would just give us a, a work of renewal and revival in us. We pray in this, in this building in Calvary Chapel, Richmond, Lord, that uh, you just purge away any lukewarmness or, Lord, any sin that's in the camp, Lord. We want to be... Uh, fully yielded to the work of your spirit. We pray for a great awakening in the church in America. We pray you awaken a very sleeping church. We pray, Lord, for our country, Lord. It is much farther than it thinks from you, and, Lord, much more in danger than it thinks it is. And, Lord, Israel was in the same boat before uh, you de dealt very, very severely with that nation. So, Lord, we pray that our, we would come to our senses, our leaders to the people who have no power at all would repent and turn from their sins and humble themselves. Lord, we pray that uh, we would see a work of repentance across this country in our school systems and business and in government. Uh, we pray for the nation of Kazakhstan, Lord. You love the people there. Uh, Lord, I don't even know anyone from that country, but Lord, uh, you do. And so, Lord, we pray that every single soul there would know that you have come for them personally. Uh, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the planet, Lord, that they would uh, even now be touched and be healed, and be strengthened, and encouraged, and even delivered, and even sent home to be with their families by your grace. And we pray that they would be strong witnesses in the midst of these difficult things. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for praying with us this morning. And as you find your seat, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to two places. And in many of your Bibles, they'll be on the same Two pages in my Bible, for example. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. So in my Bible, Isaiah 7 is on the left page and Isaiah 9 is on the right page with 8 in between. So uh, they're really, really close. You don't have to hold multiple places, just those two passages, Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. And we're just going to read two verses. I wish I could read more of the verses in both chapters, but just for the sake of time, just these two. So the first one, Isaiah chapter, and I have the verses up on the screen as well, so if you don't have a Bible, you can actually look up on the screen. Both passages are there, they're in the New King James, not that that's the only version, I just need to let you know that, there's other good versions, but that's the one I happen to be reading from. So Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Over to the ninth chapter, just one chapter in between, sixth verse, one you've probably heard many times, 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray again. Father, we come to you, our Everlasting Father, Emmanuel, our Prince of Peace. And Jesus, I come to you, Lord, you're looking down, you see this service, you see services all over the world. And Lord, you're going to measure every service. You're going uh, you're to decide if, uh, if it was honoring to you, if it was truthful to your word, if it was faithful to your word. And so Lord, we want to do that this morning. I pray, Lord, that you're well pleased. I ask for your help, your strength, your anointing. I could never do this without your help. I pray that you speak to every person watching online, every person here. Lord, that your words would penetrate our hearts and we would be not just hearers, but doers of your word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would minister to what each person needs. And if someone here doesn't know you as their Messiah, today would be that day. Those of us that know you would draw nearer to you, that your presence would be just permeating our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, uh, you see the title this morning, uh, Emmanuel, the promise of his presence. And we just read these two verses here this morning, but uh, both of these verses are what the scripture would call prophecy. And in 2 Peter 1.21, it says this, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter, who wrote this, Peter, who authored two epistles in the New Testament, he was one of the 12 apostles, was himself one of the holy men. He didn't know he was going to be one of the holy men, but God made him one of the holy men that was given scriptural prophecies. And Isaiah was, of course, one of the holy men that God chose under the Old Covenant. In fact, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more times than any other prophet. Did you guys know that? More times than any other prophet, Isaiah. He's directly quoted more than 60 times in the Gospels and the Epistles. Isaiah the prophet, he lived in the 8th and 7th century. Now, you know, before Christ, you're going down. 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. So he lived between the 8th and 7th centuries. He is in both of those. He was a prophet in Israel. He prophesied in the range of 50 to 64 years. His precise tenure is unknown, but somewhere in that 50 to 64 year range. But when the Holy Spirit gave him Isaiah 7, 14, and Isaiah 9, 6, those prophecies, think about it if you're reading them or hearing them, let's say he spoke them first, they're written later. But those prophecies were no doubt puzzling, to say the least, to people who heard them. What child could possibly fulfill being mighty God? Have you ever met a child that you say, hey, there's mighty God? No, you say, there's a little devil right there. No, I'm just kidding. But... You've never said, angel maybe, what a little angel. But what child have you ever said, that child is mighty God? 700 years later, the world's going to find out 
what we now know. But it didn't all make sense when it was written. Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, they've been fulfilled in the one. Prophesied well before Isaiah, because the coming of Jesus, or, or Jesus was pointed to even before Isaiah was ever born. In Revelation 19.10, it's up on the screen. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the heart of biblical prophecy, all of biblical prophecy, is the preeminence of Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus to the fallen world. But not just the fallen world. If you're saved here, as I am, he's still unveiling himself to me in new ways. But what was foretold and yet veiled, does that make sense? Things were foretold but yet partially veiled, or sometimes completely veiled. In the Old Testament, also called the Tanakh, which is Genesis through Malachi, was then revealed 2,000 years from right now, 2,000 years ago for us, according to the exact time frame and God's sovereign will. Exact time. I mean to the probably, well not probably, to the second. Let's go back to our two passages this morning. Probably very familiar to most of you, these passages. They'll be read millions of times around the world during this season. These two passages, they are precise Remember, I never thought of them that. They're precise. They're profound. They're spoken differently about this person than any other person's ever lived. They're powerful as they spell out the coming of God into this world through the person of his son. And what Isaiah prophesied, it comes down to this. It's either true or it's not true. It either has come to pass or it hasn't come to pass. Do you know that the younger generation of America is less and less religious and many of them now think the Bible is just a, some, a bunch of fables that was written by a bunch of prophets. It doesn't really mean much. Not only is it life-changing, someday it will be life-judging. Eternal life-judging. But it is true. But these prophecies are most assuredly true and they most assuredly have come to pass. And we now have, in the, in the Bible that you're holding, we have the witness of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Apostles, and the Epistles, that confirm everything that God outlined has come to pass. That's why Peter would later say, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What these two passages declare 700 years before Caesar Augustus, 700 years before Herod the Great, was rather emphatic on the who. That's what Isaiah is saying. Who is he talking about? He's emphatic on the who, and a very important piece of the why, not the why, the how, we'll get to the why, a very important piece of the how, but he's not specific to the why or the when, and not in those two verses anyway. Now let's say someone back in Isaiah's day opens up the scroll, or he hears it, someone writes down what he writes. Now there's debate on when it was written, 
from the time he spoke these things? How soon at? Was it written immediately? Did it come many years later? Let's say someone opens up the scroll of Isaiah in his day, much like the Ethiopian eunuch rolled up the same book of Isaiah, and he opened it up. He happened to open up the 53rd chapter. And someone reads Isaiah 9, 6. They'd never heard it before. They're traveling into Jerusalem. They're coming from, let's say, somewhere in Persia, and they come and they read Isaiah 9, 6, and they say, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everything. They can say, how on earth could any person be these characteristics? And Isaiah could respond, he could have responded something like this. Hey, you read the ninth chapter 6 verse? Go read chapter 7 verse 14. And report back to me with what you see. So then they go over there and read that. Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Well, that's interesting. Virgin shall conceive. To call his name Emmanuel. What does that name mean? And here's what we see when we closely examine Isaiah 7.14. What are the precise elements of this prophecy that make Isaiah 9.6 fully understandable? Because 7.14 informs 9.6. And who alone can fulfill those glorious names? I put them up on the screen. Uh, the first service didn't get any of this. Uh, none of it was um, it wasn't working, but we got everything. Work- yep, we got it all up there now. So there's four points up there, if you can see them. Uh, number one, if, go back to if your Bibles are open. Look at uh, chapter seven or verse fourteen, starting in the first words. There sir, it says, "Therefore, the Lord Himself." The key thing is, everything that's about to happen, it's going to come by the Lord himself. And the word here for Lord is Adonai. You guys know there's different words for God. Different he- this is the Hebrew word Adonai. Often it's Yahweh. Here it's Adonai. And sometimes they would use the word Adonai instead of Yahweh. Because Yahweh was held in that the word Yahweh, the, the name for God Yahweh, was held in such reverence that they wouldn't want to even breathe the name. So they take Adonai instead of, and, and the only way I can kind of express this is maybe instead of Father, Daddy, coming down into it's still personal, it's still the same person, but there is a it's almost like the word Yahweh is too holy to use, so they have a second word Adonai, that in the Jewish tradition they sometimes will use Adonai instead of Yahweh. And that's what's used here. So Adonai himself will make this happen. Uh, the Lord of Israel and the, and the God over all the world is going to make this, bring, this come about. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord's going to give the sign. Number two, he says... Behold, the virgin, because there's only going to be, the why it says the virgin, there's only going to be one in the history of the world. Not a virgin, multiple, the virgin, there's going to be one virgin, Mary. She doesn't know, she doesn't know that she is in this passage yet, she'll find out this later. But the virgin, so there'll be one virgin that will conceive. Conception and pregnancy, it's clear from the text, it's saying well in advance, conception and pregnancy will not involve a human man. That's, that's the point that's made there. Conception will not involve a human man. Therefore, 
It's going to be a miracle done by Adonai, an almighty God doing an almighty miracle. Number three, it says, she will bear a son. In your Bibles, it's capitalized, S-O-N. Being a virgin, this is important because if she's a virgin and she has a son, guess what that makes him? The firstborn son. That's also pertinent to other prophecies. He has to be the firstborn son. So virgin son means she has a firstborn son. And number four, she'll call the name of this son Emmanuel. Now, this name, we now know what it means. But if you're coming from some other country, you're reading the scroll, you don't know what it means. The name Emmanuel means God with us. And it also means with us is God. God with us and with us is God. So we know with certainty that this prophecy declares that this son is going to be unique because he's going to be born of a virgin. His name, is, his name means God with us. You've never seen anyone else possess a title. My name means God. I am God with you. It's going to be unique in any birth in Scripture. It's going to be unique in any birth in the history of the world. Nobody else in Scripture, but this Emmanuel, is promised to have a virgin birth. Only this prophecy. No one else, not Moses, not David, not Paul, nobody else was promised a virgin birth. Just Emmanuel. Now, scientifically, you ever run into people and say, I don't believe all the... I'm a, I, I believe in science only. I believe in science too. I believe in the God who created science. So uh, it, you and I are in agreement. I, I believe that I have to have blood to operate. You know, I believe in a lot of things that are really important. I believe I must eat. I must drink water. These are biological facts because they're scientific facts. But scientifically, no virgin can give birth. I know in our country, we're very confused about a lot of things when it comes to this country. <laughs> So I'm not going to get into that right now, but uh, we think guys can have babies and all this stuff, but not, it's not true. But scientifically, no virgin can give birth and bring forth a child on her own without any other human being being involved. Then again, if you've read your Bible, scientifically, Moses can't part the Red Sea. Scientifically, Joshua can't make the sun stand still. Scientifically, Elisha can't raise a young boy, right? How hard are these things for God? He spoke the universe into existence. How do you speak stuff into existence? Matter. So God creating a virgin birth is not hard for him. The hard thing was to send his son on the mission. The virgin birth is not hard for God. Creating the world is not hard for God. Rolling up like a tent someday isn't hard for God. Walking on water won't be hard for Jesus when he, all these things. So scientifically, yes, it can happen, but God's well above the laws of science. So if he says, this is how Emmanuel's going to come, and this is how he's going to walk among men, we can be assured that God has the power to bring it about. Amen? Now let's examine Isaiah 9.6. We looked at Isaiah 7.14. Let's look at Isaiah 9.6. And more about who Emmanuel is. Number one, he says, For un 
to us. In context, uh, and when I say in context, I mean the verses above and the verses below. But not only the verses above and below, but in context of the scriptures as a whole. I mention it from time to time, but it's a good rule of thumb. When you read the Bible, remember the 20-20 rule. Read 20 verses above, 20 verses after, and you get a much better context. But now some passages, you need to read multiple chapters. The 20-20 rule is not a hard, fast rule. It is a general thing that in most cases is quite helpful. But in some cases, to get the context, you might need to read four or five chapters and maybe more sometimes. But in most cases, the verses above and below uh, are quite helpful. And in this case, chapter 9, uh, all the context you really need is the verses before, starting in chap- uh, verse uh, 9-1, down through the rest of the chapter. But that said, when it says unto us, and you've got to go back up and read verses 1 through 5 to see what I mean by that. In context, unto us is unto Israel first. Remember, Jesus came first to the lost house of Israel, and then the nations. Unto us is so it's inclusive of Israel plus the nations. Now, it's not Israel and the nations are secondary. It's just the order of God's proclaiming, saying, I'm coming first to Israel. But even while Jesus was in Israel, he also spoke to Gentiles, Roman centurions, people in Tyre and Sidon, people that came over from Decapolis. So uh, it was to, when it says us, it's, is, it's the Jew and Gentile combined is what we're Seen in context. Number two, a child is born. Now you might just gloss over that and say, all right, okay, a child is born. No, this is important. This means that there will be a literal birth. This is not a metaphor. This is a prophecy of an exact event. So it says a child will be born. A baby will be born just like if you have, we have three, three daughters. I remember the hospitals. I remember exactly where they were born. It's, it was a literal birth. It was not a figment of my imagination. And now that they're in college, my bills prove it. But uh, it'd be a literal, a literal birth. And that goes back to Isaiah 7:14. Remember, it says, "The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Bearing a son is the birth. So it's mentioned in both places. It'll be a literal birth. Number three, a son is given. The child's going to be a son, not a daughter. It's not going to be queen. This is going to be the future king of kings, a son will be given. I put, you might want to underline that word given. That word is pretty important. We'll look at it a little bit later. The son is not just coming. He is given. You might have a hint in your mind. Number four, the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, obviously, at birth, a baby does not have the government resting upon their shoulder. Even babies that are, are going to inherit the crown, they do not run the government in diapers. So this part of it is speaking at some future later time, go back and listen to the Joel study, and that part of it is for much later. <coughs> Remember, God will actually go back and forth in time periods in a single verse. Does that make sense? He might go a thousand years before and then right back to the moment. God looks at time like we look at a map. He sees it all. That's just the best way I can describe it. Uh, number five, his name will be called... Notice it doesn't say names, plural. It says name. His name will be called. Why would you say name and then have multiple names? Because Jesus is singularly many things at once. His name will be wonderful. The word wonderful means extraordinary. I love this other meaning of wonderful, 
hard to understand. Would you say there's things about God that are hard to understand? It's not just that he's extraordinary. He is hard to understand. As a matter of fact, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is, there's things that God will perplex you. And he's not going to let the atheists that shake their fists say, oh, if you want to prove to me you exist, God's not, he's not falling for that. <laughs> Counselor, it means to give counsel. It means to give purpose and a plan. Don't people need a purpose for life? Mighty God. Here the word is not Adonai, and it's not Yahweh. The word is El. You've probably seen that also. The word is El. And El means the true God. Would you, not, would you agree that there's many false gods out there? So it says that when this one comes, when this, when this one that's prophesied comes, he will be the true God. There will be a lot of false messiahs, but this will be the true God. His name is Everlasting Father. Everlasting means perpetual. It means ancient. It means forever. And here where it says Father, the word is Ab, A-B, where you get the word Abba, uh, but it also means God as Father. God as your Father. And it also means the Father of His people. And then lastly, Prince of Peace. What a beautiful name and title that only Jesus has given. Everyone else fails at bringing peace, but his name, Prince of Peace, means ruler of safety, soundness, completeness, and tranquility. Our governments cannot pull any of these things off, can they? That's why the governments will someday be on his shoulder, because no one will have ever succeeded in any of these things. Now, by the way, the fact that the Son is also called the Father would have been pretty confusing when someone first read it. How can the Son be the Father? You're either the Son or the Father. But this clearly speaks to, I know the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the doctrine is all through the Bible. Amen? Uh, the doctrine of Trinity is clear as a bell. And the triune nature of God is such that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are one, and yet they're distinctly. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So he would be both the Father and the Son, and yet he's submissive to the Father. How does all that work? Go back to God is hard to understand, right? <laughs> he says in his own name, when you hit a dead end, go back to the fact that he's hard to understand. As I mentioned, Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament. And his prophecies here in 7.14 and 9.6 are prominent, but they're not the only details, as I'm sure most of you know. They're not the only details that... Isaiah gives about God coming into the world. There's other passages that he gives. Among them, I put them up on the screen, uh, Isaiah 9.1. These are other passages that he speaks, and then they become part of the book of Isaiah. He will be, Jesus will be found in Galilee. Where did he grow up? Galilee. Where did his ministry begin? Galilee. Where did the vast majority of his ministry take place? Galilee. Isaiah 9, 2, he's going to be a great light in darkness. Jesus would go on to say that he, he is the light of the world. And he would be the bright light shining among, uh, you know, when he gets there, there's these dictators that are quite evil, and Jesus is quite the, dark, quite the light shining in the darkness, the contrast. Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10, he's going to come from the house of Jesse, with Jesse being the father of David, so he's going to come from the house and lineage of David, which makes him from the tribe of Judah and directly from David's lineage. And then Isaiah 11, 2, uh, God's spirit will rest upon him. Remember when Jesus went into uh, the, the synagogue 
and he opened the scroll, and he read from the prophet Isaiah. And he reads, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, and he says to everyone that was there, this has now been fulfilled in your hearing. It is a mic drop moment when he tells everybody, what you just, you've heard it as a kid, you've read this passage, that's me. And then he walks off. And then the rest of his ministry would testify that definitely the Spirit of God was upon him because he's healing people, casting out demons, feeding thousands, raising people from the dead. Nobody could do these things. Now these are just the prophecies, the ones up on the screen and the ones that we read in 714 and 96. These are just prophecies related to his birth, his youth, and who Jesus is, his divine nature. Additionally, the Old Testament has many other what we would call messianic prophecies, many other prophecies about Jesus, passages that tell us more about him. But one of the passages, remember not, Isaiah 7.14 just says he's going to be born a virgin. It doesn't say where, it doesn't say when. Isaiah 9.6 tells us he's wonderful counselor. It tells us about his authoritative nature, but it doesn't say where he's going to be born and when he's going to be born. But if someone were to say, to you, the Bible should have addressed that. You can say, I'm glad you asked. It did address that in Micah 5 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. Notice that when Micah writes this, he doesn't not only write that the birth would take place in Bethlehem, he makes sure you understand he's going to be the ruler and that he's eternal. His going forth are from everlasting, from old and from everlasting. So in other words, that Jesus is the ancient of days, that he is the everlasting father. So he ties together, the one born in Bethlehem is the one Isaiah was talking about. Same thing, now, and now we have the place. It will be in Bethlehem. And then in Daniel... If you want to think about, well, what a, shouldn't people have known a time frame? God gave that too. In Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now we understand this is Daniel's 70th, 70 week prophecy. 69 weeks have already taken place. And so when the command to rebuild the temple began, you could count 69 times 7, 7 years for each week, people would have been able to look at and know, oh, the Messiah is going to be in this time frame. These years, he has to be coming in that time frame. Personally, I believe that the wise men, the magi that were over in Persia, uh, and you, know, you see all time this time of year, the camels and the, the, all, all this stuff headed, headed to headed across desert landscapes. But the wise men, uh, the magi, that it's my personal belief, and, and again, we don't know this for a fact, but Daniel himself, who wrote this, where did he live his life? In Persia and Babylon. And uh, it's widely believed that Daniel taught the people that were there that were interested, the scriptures, and what God would be doing. And so he's the one that was given the 70-week prophecy, and I believe that the magi themselves... We're already looking at the time period and saying there's got to be a king born in Israel. The star only confirmed what they already were looking for. The star was like, not only is there one coming, you need to get on your camels and get there. 
Whereas before, they were definitely, I believe, uh, you know, studying these things. But the world, the world had a timetable. It was given. And notice, by the way, Daniel says, Messiah, which is, means the anointed one. And he says, the prince, which matches prince of peace, which Isaiah speaks of. Now understand, the nation of Israel. Now you think about Israel 2,000 years ago. First century Caesar Augustus is in power. He's about to give this census that's going to impact everybody. I'm going to go back to their, uh, the village uh, of their birth. But understand that Israel at that time, in the first century, was hoping for, they were looking for, they were even praying for, going to the temple and praying for the Messiah, that they really did believe God was going to send a Messiah. Israel did, they did believe a Messiah was coming. And that they did also believe, they believed that he would be of the house of David. They didn't have any problem with that. They believed he would be a great man like David or Moses. Or maybe even a combination of Moses' greatness and David's greatness. They were absolutely looking for a royal king or a mighty prophet like Moses. I'm talking about when it was dawning that Jesus would come. But what they did not seem to comprehend, and I can understand this, and I think all of us can, they could not comprehend was that the prophet would actually be God. His name, Emmanuel, God with us. They thought he would be a great prophet, but that's not what the prophecy said. It didn't say he would be a great man. It said he'd be the God-man. It said he'd be God himself in human flesh, God with us. And they did not see that. They, 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 were, like, they were looking for a great person they're looking for, but they didn't see someone sinless coming. Now, although these prophecies about who Emmanuel would be and how he would be born were written for all of Israel to read, the scriptures were there, and all the nations could have read them, everyone could have anticipated these things. Most did not. Just as it is right now, there is more written in the New Testament about Jesus' second coming, and guess what percentage of people really give that much thought? It's a low percentage, right? <laughs> I'm not going to put a number on it, but I, I know it's not a high number. Way more people are thinking about Christmas lists or who's playing this afternoon in football than, than Jesus coming back. Let's fast forward 700 years from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. Now, we know who is soon to be born, if you get to the first century there. We know his name's going to be Emmanuel, because that's already been prophesied. We know the authority he's going to possess, that's been prophesied. We know his tribe and lineage, that's been prophesied. We know he's going to have a virgin birth, that's been prophesied. We know the place of his birth, that's been prophesied. But that's not going to make it any less shocking to those that find out that they will not only have a front row seat to these things being fulfilled, but they're actually going to be in the prophecies. Thinking about Mary and Joseph, they, they might have thought these things are definitely going to happen, but they did not know they would be part of the scene. Furthermore, we know some of the who, but there's more of who Emmanuel is, and there's the bigger issue of why he has come to be born of a virgin. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. This is your, only, this is your last turn. You only had one before. Uh, this is the second one, Matthew chapter 1, a very familiar passage. It'll get read at many different 
services all over the world, probably even more than the two I just read because they're in the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now Matthew was a tax collector. Very, him and Luke was a physician. They were both super detailed guys, right? Matthew's very articulate, so is Luke. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. There's a sigh of relief for Joseph. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What prophet? That's Isaiah. How do we know? Because the verse now comes next. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7.14. Matthew's requoting it, which is translated God with us. So if we wonder about the meaning, it's spelled out perfectly. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and she called his name Jesus. Part of the unknown, part of the unknown, and who else would be involved, comes to fruition here. It becomes clear. Uh, we knew that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin, but we didn't know who. And then, Joseph and Mary, they might have said, I wonder how God's going to do this. And God's like, you're going to be a big, big part of this, right? Uh, you're not going to have to wonder how. You're going to be involved. You're going to be forever in this text. And God chose this poor, obscure to Israel and obscure to the world, little couple, Jewish couple from Galilee. And just as Isaiah had said, Jesus would come from Galilee ninth chapter. But he chose this couple and Joseph to be the earthly father, not the biological father. There's a difference, right? There's a lot of people that are raised by someone who says, that's my dad, he's not my biological dad, but he truly has been my dad. And on earth, Jesus would have an earthly father, but not a biological father. And so Joseph says, God sends an angel says, you're going to be responsible to raise him as your son, but you're not going to be the one that actually caused him to come to life. That's done by the Holy Spirit. And then he would have an earthly and biological mother. And obviously that would be Mary. And just that the prophecies were supernatural, because they were written when you read them way back then, you say, how is this possible? A virgin birth, how can he be mighty God? All these things that we read. Just that the prophecies themselves were supernatural, so was the announcement. Mary gets an angel. Gabriel is actually named in Luke's gospel. And Joseph gets an angel. Both of them get an angel sent from heaven to make sure they clear up any cobwebs in there. How is this possible? They get an angel sent from heaven, both of them. And of course, the conception will be supernatural. And finally, the incarnation is supernatural. That God actually can become a man is the incarnation, and that in and of itself is supernatural. 
But the why. We see the supernatural that God is, he, he foretold it, he fulfilled it, all of it is supernatural. But why? Why does God have to come in human flesh? The why uh, that he's coming in flesh is not only supernatural, that God can even become a man, but the reason that God was coming in flesh is super sacrificial. And that's an understatement. Amen? The reason is more, it's super sacrificial, and that's an understatement to the nth degree. The promise of Emmanuel's coming, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of peace was the promise of peace with God. Because you and I are born at odds with God. We are born not at peace with God. We're born at enmity with God. So the promise of peace was the promise of peace with God, but only, only through the means of forgiveness through God. Notice the additional and monumental name because Emmanuel was known, but this other name that Jesus would go by, Yeshua, which is, which is the New Testament way of saying Joshua, Yahshua in the Old Testament, but the name Jesus, this was the name, this monumental name that the angel says, when he's born, you shall call him Jesus. He doesn't take away the Emmanuel name. He actually, the angel mentions the, or uh, we see that Matthew mentions Emmanuel as well. So yes, his name is Emmanuel, but he will walk the earth and go by the name, even though God is Yahweh, you, Adonai is also his name. Jesus is Emmanuel, but you'll call him Jesus. Why? Because the mission was the primary focus. What was the mission? To save his people from their sins. So that's what it says here. It says, you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, he shall save his people from their sins. The matchless names of Jesus, Yeshua, it equally means Jehovah is salvation. It means the Son of God. It means Savior of mankind and God incarnate. All of that meaning at the same time is the name of Jesus. The presence of Emmanuel, God coming down in the person of the Son, God taking on human flesh, was for the express purpose of providing himself as the sacrifice for sin. Remember, back in Isaiah 9-6, I'm going to bring this home, just, we've got these last couple minutes, but don't miss these closing points. In Isaiah 9-6, remember, it says, for unto you a son is given. That was incredibly, there are, there are no accidental words in the Bible, ever. There's not even, Jesus says there's not even an accidental jot or tittle. In other words, a period or a comma. When I write, there's some accidental periods and commas. But when, you, when God writes, everything is on purpose. And so when it says a son is given, Jesus would later express that. Remember, middle of the night meeting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night. He knew the scriptures. He had been studying these things. I guarantee he had been combing through things. I mean, he matches this, he matches this, he matches this, he matches this. I know you're from heaven. No one can do these miracles. And Jesus tells him, in addition to the fact that he said, you must be born again. In the 16th verse, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave, the next one, here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There we go, there we go. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave, so the Son would be given, that God was not just sending, but giving his only begotten Son. 
that ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it's believing in who Jesus is. That's very important. You cannot be saved without first believing the testimony of Jesus and believing in who he is. But also what he's done through his own shed blood, which the prophet Isaiah also spoke of. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch opened up, Isaiah chapter 53, where the Ethiopian eunuch reads and finds, who is this man? Is this talking about this man or someone else? Where Jesus is portrayed as the lamb that is slain for our transgressions. That's why John says, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus would be the Passover lamb. So the mission, we knew the who, it's going to be Emmanuel. We knew the how, a virgin birth. We knew the where, Bethlehem. We knew the when, Daniel chapter 9, the 69 weeks. But the why, that's really important. Why? For our sins to be forgiven, amen? That's the why. And in 1 John 1, 2, it says, and he himself is the propitiation. How many times have you used that word lately? Propitiation. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Jesus' death is powerful enough, his blood is powerful enough to cleanse every single person that's ever lived. Now, every single person won't come to him, but if they did, his blood is enough to cover every single sin. Now, God himself gave his son, and this word propitiation, what it means is that the son's propitiation, it appeases or satisfies the wrath of God. In other words, the wrath has to be satisfied or appeased, and the only propitiation, the only thing that will appease the wrath of God is the blood of Jesus, because it's the only sinless sacrifice. That is what the word propitiation means. Jesus did not come... Brothers and sisters, as we close this service, Jesus did not come, I hate to ruin your season, Jesus did not come to start Christmas traditions. Jesus did not come to start Christmas music. He did not come to start Christmas movies. And I like these things, by the way. I'm not, if you've watched them, don't feel guilty. But he didn't come for that stuff. He didn't even come to start Christmas season, even though his name is in it, although now a lot of people want to take his name out of it. There's nothing wrong with those things, especially if we're lifting up the name of Jesus in this time of season. I want to be joyful to my neighbors and family members that don't know the Lord, and they're happy as can be in the month of December, and I'm happy with them, but I still want to point to Jesus, because he didn't come to start all this other stuff that we now see in you know, shopping, Amazon, all that, sorry, Marty. But anyway, all that kind of stuff. No, he came as the only perfect present this world has ever seen. His sacrifice, his propitiation is the gift. We can have a ton of stuff. We can get a ton of stuff. And I won't, but some of you might. But, uh, but <laughs> we don't have anything if we don't have Emmanuel, Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, his presence living in us. Dr. David Jeremiah, some of you probably have read his books or listened to him on the radio, he says, all the Christmas presents in the world are nothing without the presence of Christ. Yes, Emmanuel came exactly as God foretold. Yes, Jesus was born of a virgin exactly as God foretold. Yes, he walked the earth as God foretold. Yes, he died and rose as a man as God foretold. Yes, Jesus is present everywhere. He's all throughout the universe. God is 
infinite. He's omnipresent is the word. Um, because he's mighty God. But the question, is his eternal presence by his Holy Spirit living in you? Is it living in you? Is he leading you as your king, as your shepherd? If not, I pray that you would receive not only the Prince of Peace, but his saving grace and peace. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again that your word is true. It's faithful. Lord, these things have surely come to pass. And Lord, we've been changed because we believed on these things. And we've received not only your truth, but we've received you living in us. But Lord, if there's even one watching online or here that does not have your presence living in them, by the saving grace of Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit being transformed from death into life, there's even one. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to them. You'd prick their heart. They would see their need. And before we close, that they would even, or even if after this service, they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. And before the worship team uh, closes out in worship, there's even one person I'd wouldn't want to share this much truth about the coming and ultimately the mission, the why of why Jesus came. If there's even one person that's here and doesn't know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's even one person, even one. Jesus died for the millions, but he died for the one. Even one. There's even a single person. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you if there's anyone. If everyone here knows the Lord, and by the way, if you have questions afterward, you know, I said some of these things, you've got to kind of digest them a little bit. We're glad to talk with you. But D.L. Moody said he saw more people saved in the inquiry room after the service than he ever saw in the service. <laughs> so uh, we'll have some guys up here in the corner if you need prayer or just want to ask anything. But for all of us, I, I pray that we would assess that it's his presence that is flourishing in our life. And that uh, is... Jaden was talking about earlier, that means abiding in Jesus, abiding in him. He's already come, but he has a lot more work to do in us. Amen? Why don't you stand as we close in worship?